afternoon, the sermon will focus on the doctrine of the Word of God as summarized and taught by the church in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 5. Beginning at question 12, then, we read this. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? Answer, God demands that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full atonement, or rather payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Dear congregation, brothers and sisters in the Lord, one of the great comforting truths of the Christian faith as taught in the Bible is that salvation is a free gift. Salvation is not something that we can ever earn. We cannot deserve it or have it as our reward. Salvation, the Bible teaches from beginning to end, is always a gift, and it's only a gift. It's not a gift with any conditions attached. It's just a gift. Many passages of the Bible bear this out. I think, for example, of the beautiful words of Isaiah 55, which pastors love to use as a call to worship. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Salvation is without cost to those who are saved. It doesn't cost you a thing. It's a gift. The New Testament very frequently explicitly states that salvation is a gift. For example, in Romans 3.24, the Apostle Paul says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift. And in the context, his point is, it's not something we merit. It's not something we somehow can have as our just desserts but it is God's undeserved gift. Well, if salvation is indeed free, if there is no cost, then the language of Lord's Day 5 at first glance is rather jarring because Lord's Day 5 doesn't really sound like a birthday. It doesn't sound like Christmas. It doesn't sound like free presents for everybody. You know what Lord's Day 5 sounds like instead? It sounds like something the tax department might send you. Full payment must be made, it says. Who hears that on a birthday? Um, That's not the kind of a birthday message anybody wants to hear about. We ourselves must make full payment, says this Lord's Day. And if we can't pay it, then someone else has to pay it for us. Just like with the tax department, you better find a way to pay Indeed, this Lord's Day seems rather preoccupied with notions of payment. And one can't help but ask the question, how does that actually then fit with the beautiful emphasis of the whole Bible on salvation as a free gift? If it's for free, 
then why all this talk about payment? How can something be both free and at the same time require full payment? You would, you would argue, prob- probably, if you're new to this sort of thing, um, if you're not familiar with the Christian doctrine of the atonement, you would, you would probably argue either something's free or you have to pay, but it can't really be both. Well, this afternoon we will see that counterintuitively salvation is indeed both a free gift and something for which full payment has been made. Salvation is paradoxically entirely free and yet extremely costly. And so I'd like to speak with you this afternoon on this theme, what salvation costs, what salvation costs. And we'll see, first of all, that the cost is a divine requirement. Secondly, it's a human impossibility. And thirdly, it's the Savior's gift. First then, it's a divine requirement. We must make full payment. Now, if you've grown up in a Reformed church or not only in a Reformed church, but let's just say any faithful evangelical church in the community. You've grown up even uh, in this church building. Maybe you attended this church when you were a kid and you heard the gospel here. It's not strange to hear about full payment. But some time ago, I got involved in some ongoing dialogue with, with a number of Canadian Muslims, fairly new arrivals in our country. And I got into a forum discussion with them on the internet And before we knew what happened, we were talking about the cross and why the cross is so central to the Christian faith and why Islam doesn't have a cross but instead has a sword as its ultimate symbol. Well, if you talk to anybody who's a faithful, devout Muslim for any length of time, you find out that they regard this notion of full payment having to be made as very strange. If you talk to a Muslim, he will tell you that in Islamic theology, there is no need for anyone to pay for the sin which you've committed. The only requirement for you to receive forgiveness from Allah is that you acknowledge your sin and confess it. And you ask Allah to take it away, and then it's taken away. And there's no need for anyone to pay anything. And it's quite a seductive thing to hear because they will quickly say to you, look, when someone sins against you, and then they come to you and they say, look, I'm really sorry that I gossiped about you in the office. I'm really sorry I told uh, false stories about you on the bus on the way to school. Will you forgive me? What do you say? Do you say, well, yeah, but you first have to pay. You first have to pay. Uh, You have to pay maybe a financial amount or You have to go out and and let me inflict some physical suffering on you. And once you've paid, then I will forgive you. Like who who thinks like that? That's, That's not really how forgiveness works in our human relations. If someone sincerely comes to you and says sincerely, look, I I sinned, I, I wronged you, will you forgive me? Then you say, hopefully, yes, I forgive you. I do forgive you. And I'm going to treat you now as though you never even did what you did. So the question is, if we human beings can forgive people who sin against us without requiring them to pay for their sin, to suffer for their sin before we forgive them, why can't God do the same? Um, If you ever get involved in discussions with 
Islamic people in your community, you're going to be dealing with that question. It's going to come up pretty quickly. And so you have to think about it. Why can't God forgive without any further ado? Why can't God just forgive people, period? If God wants to forgive sins, why doesn't God just forgive sins without demanding that full payment be made for all the wrong we have done? And it might even go further, your discussion with your, with your neighbor or your colleague at work who's a Muslim. He might say, if, if full payment has to be made before forgiveness can be offered, is that even really forgiveness? Doesn't forgiveness mean that we just let things go without full justice? Remarkably, these kind of questions today are being asked not only by your Muslim neighbors, but also by popular Christian theologians. I won't mention any names, but I will say that one of these theologians actually lives right here in Abbotsford, and he writes a ton of books. Every time I go to the bookstore, it's like there's another book by this guy. And his entire life seems devoted to destroying, attacking, tearing down the traditional doctrine of atonement, which talks about payment having to be made. He hates that idea of a God who demands payment for sin that have been committed against God. So if, if, if this gentleman was in, in our midst this afternoon, if he, if he heard about the new congregation here in Abbotsford, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out this new congregation, and then he listened to Lord's Day 5, he would, he would be on edge. He might be tempted to leave because Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6 are entirely antithetical to every book this man has ever written, every article he's ever put into a journal. He fights against the doctrine of a just God who demands justice be satisfied. And he even talks in horrible language about the traditional doctrine of atonement in which God sends his son into the world to bear the wrath of God against the sin of the world. He calls that cosmic child abuse. That's the kind of language that he uses to attack what you here confess. So how to respond to all this? How do we respond to that influential theologian from Abbotsford? How would we respond to our, our Muslim neighbor? Well, I put it to you this afternoon, congregation, that these kind of questions arise only when people have a somewhat defective idea of God in their minds. If you have a diminished God in your mind, if you make God out to be little more than a bigger version of you, so God is like kind of a big, powerful human. Then you're going to start asking, why can't God forgive like I do? But I put it to you that if you have a truly biblical concept of God, and if you understand the holiness of God as communicated to you in the Bible, those kind of questions, they just tend to fade away. Because who, after all, is God? God is not just some bigger version of us. God is the Holy One. So the word holy in the Bible means unique. We usually use the word holy to indicate God's moral purity, but it actually has a much broader meaning than just moral purity. When we say that God is holy, we mean He's one of a kind. We mean there's no one like Him in all the world. There's no one like Him in the universe. He's in a class of His own. That's why Moses says in his song in Exodus 15, things like, who is like you, O Lord? And the answer is, well, nobody. Nobody's like you because you are in a class of one. You are God. You're the only God. You're the living God. And you are transcendent beyond all human imagination. 
when human beings encounter God in Scripture, they are often completely overwhelmed. Well, not often, they always are. Uh, for example, Isaiah in his calling vision that we find in chapter 6 of his prophecies, he, he has a vision of God on his throne. He perceives something of the transcendent glory of God, the uniqueness of God, how God is completely beyond all creation, and he hears the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Isaiah do? Does he say, hi, God, how are you? No, he falls flat on his face. He just about dies. And he says, woe is me, for for my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Woe is me. Uh, He feels like he can't even survive this encounter with God, however brief and, and limited it was. See, that's what happens when sinners encounter the living God who is holy. Well, they encounter God who is the very definition of justice, the very definition of purity. Then we don't say, why do you want your justice satisfied, God? Then we say instead, woe is me, I'm doomed. How can I survive this encounter with the living God? That's why it's a good thing that the catechism here talks about sin as being committed against the most high majesty of God. That's actually Lord's Day 4, the last part of Lord's Day 4. God's justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God. That's what you're doing when you're sinning. You're putting yourself up against the most high majesty of God. Even a little sin is you exerting your will over against the most high majesty of God. You see, at the heart of all sin is rebellion. Sin is not just like you, maybe on a typewriter or keyboard, and you hit the wrong key by accident. Well, sin is more sinister than that. Sin manifests you standing in opposition to the most high majesty of God. That's what you're doing. You're standing against the most high majesty of God. It's really a direct attack on God. When you sin, you're saying to God, I wish you weren't God. I wish you weren't on the throne. I wish your law wasn't there. I wish I could just be whatever I want to be, whenever I want to be, and in whatever way I want to be. You see, the pride of humanity, the selfishness of our hearts, the anger, the greed, the lust, the lies, and the deceit, the coveting, the lack of thankfulness, the lack of contentment, the lack of generosity, all of these things, these constitute a direct attack on God. That's what they are in their essence. So the Bible says sin is lawlessness. If I may put it really crudely, sin is giving God the finger. That's what you're doing. You're you're declaring God to be irrelevant to you when you sin. You're saying, I don't care. I don't care that you're the king. I don't care that you're sovereign. I'm going to do it my way just because I want to. If for just a second, if just for a second we could get into our minds a true picture of the awesome majesty, the burning purity, and the holiness of God. I don't think we would ever ask again, why doesn't God just let us let it all go? We would understand then what answer 12 says. Such a God, such a God who is holy, such a God who is the definition of justice, such a God who is the definition of moral purity, such a God demands that justice be satisfied. Of course God demands that. 
God can't stop being just. He can't stop being righteous. He can't stop being holy. He can't stop being pure. And at some level, humans understand this. We understand this even about earthly judges. Let's imagine that a person stood before an earthly judge. He had confessed earlier to serious crimes. Let's imagine the worst. He, he'd been on a, on, a, on a rampage, stealing and hurting and even killing. And then he stood before the judge, and he told the judge, you know, I'm sorry. I really am. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for all that I did. And the judge said, great, I'm so glad you're sorry. Be on your way. Would you admire a judge like that? Would everybody in Abbotsford be so happy that we had such wise judges who told hardened criminals who had done terrible things, be on your way. No further penalty, no further consequence, just be on your way. You know, the whole community would be in an uproar and everybody would be frustrated because Justice wasn't being done. Justice wasn't being served. Justice wasn't being satisfied. And everybody would have the sense that there's something just, just really dreadful about this. So even when it comes to lesser crimes, we know that there should be consequences. If someone in your community shows disrespect for your community by disobeying all the traffic laws, he speeds, he ignores stop signs, he ignores stop lights, he passes in solid lines, he doesn't honor school zones and playground zones, he drives while he's impaired, and finally he's standing before the judge, finally. Who would be happy if the judge said, I can see that you're really sorry for everything you did, so I offer you an unconditional discharge. Well, I can tell you, you'd hear about it if judges did that, and they sometimes do, frankly, do that. And then you pretty soon see signs along the freeway that say things like, judges are part of the problem. You've all seen that sign out in Aldergrove, probably along the freeway at 264th Street. Um, somebody feels very strongly about this, that proper consequences aren't being applied. Justice is not being served. And so if even crimes against local traffic laws or transgressions against local traffic laws and, and crimes committed against the the criminal code of Canada, if even those sins deserve serious penalties, how much more would we sin against the incredible, incomprehensible, most high majesty of God? Sin deserves punishment. It's that simple. If we reject God, then we deserve to be rejected. If we reject the life giver, the one who's given us life, if we reject him, then our lives are forfeit. That would be justice. It would be completely just if the giver of life would forfeit our lives because of our sin. Which leads then to the next point. Can we do this? Can we indeed make this payment? The answer to the catechism is number 13, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Have you ever been in debt badly? Maybe some of you know what that's like. And every month, instead of getting ahead, you get a little bit further behind. Uh, you get your bank statement, it looks awful. You get your credit card statement, you didn't make the minimum payment even. And so the interest is there and it's growing. And you've got not one but two credit cards or maybe three or four. And it's just becoming this nightmare. Um, 
yeah, that can, that can drive people to ruin. At the very least, it should drive them to a credit counselor to get some professional advice about how to move forward. But debt is a terrible problem. And here the Catechism says we daily increase our debt. I wonder if we understand that. Every day we increase our debt with God. We might not really agree with that. We might say, really? I'm a Christian and, you know, like I go to church every Sunday and I sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and I, I listen to sermons and I offer financial gifts and I support the work of charity. I make big sacrifices for Christian education and I do my best to minister to others in their time of need. Surely that all counts for something with God. How can you say that my debt is getting bigger every day? Well, no matter how many good works you do, congregation, you will never compensate for the evil things that are present in your life. Every day, sin is present in your life. Every day, right? Every day, sin is present. Every day at the end of the day, you should spend some time and search in your own heart and pray to God. And as you do that, God's Spirit will bring to mind your ongoing struggles and your failures. And you will have to say, Lord, I have sinned. I I did not offer to you perfect love today. I did not offer to my neighbor love in the same way that I love myself. Your debt gets bigger. If you want a really graphic visualization of this, you could go to a website called the National Debt Clock. The NationalDebtClock.org. Some of you have probably seen this debt clock. It's really freaky. Um, because it shows you our national debt as a country, the accumulative national debt, and it's like a speedometer or an odometer, and it just shows you how it's growing by the minute, by the hour, by the day. And it's absolutely staggering that the total debt of our country, as of a couple of weeks ago, for the first time, passed $1 trillion. And then you watch the wheel spin, and it's getting bigger by the millions every day. Every few months, many billions of debt is added. Can you imagine how awful that is? Who's going to ever pay that? Who's ever going to pay that? What's, what's going to happen when, when finally we have to face reality and we can't just push it down the road a little further anymore like we're trying to do? Well, then, economically speaking, all hell will break loose. That's what happens. So go and look at that little uh, website and, and just visualize the national debt of our country and then imagine yourself as a sinner if you're trying to pay off your debt to God. What a hopeless business that would be. You're not paying off a penny. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. If that's going to be your strategy, if you want to try to pay off your debt with God, good luck with that. There's only one way you could ever become debt-free with God. Only one way. And you don't even want to think about it. The only way you could ever get debt-free with God is for you to pay the debt yourself. Experience in your own person the just penalty for your sin, the the burning, fierce indignation of God against all sin. You have to absorb the wrath of God against all the sin you've ever committed in your entire life. Do you want to deal with that? Do you want to deal with the wrath of God against even one of your sins? Maybe you told a little lie, and you don't think it's a big lie. But then all of a sudden, you're in the presence of the God of all truth who hates all lies. And suddenly you realize that that little tiny lie that you thought wasn't a big thing is actually a very big thing. That is totally offensive and disgusting to the living God who made heaven and earth. And all of a sudden you realize you're in trouble. And you've got a big debt to pay because God's wrath against your sin is fierce. He hates lies. 
can't bear them. He's opposed to them. He will punish them, even the little ones. Imagine if that's all we could say this afternoon. Go to God and deal with His wrath. Deal with His justice. That would be a terrible message to come to church for. So let's go on quickly to the third point. Making full payment is a divine requirement. It's a human impossibility, but it is a Savior's gift. What you cannot pay, dear brothers and sisters, your Savior has paid. Forgiveness for you is free. It's unconditionally, absolutely free. It's a pure gift, but it's a pure gift because Jesus Christ has fully paid. Because Jesus Christ fully paid for your sin because he fully satisfied God's justice, because he fully experienced the terrible burning indignation of God against your sin and absorbed it into his own being and dealt with it once and for all decisively because Jesus Christ paid for your sin and for the sin of the world. You don't have to pay. It's like our Lord Jesus said in the text we read from Mark, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what a ransom is? A ransom is what you pay to, pay, to, to, to set someone free who's a slave or is in some type of economic bondage. So Jesus Christ saw you in bondage to sin. He saw you on your way to facing a holy God. He saw that you were doomed. And so he came to pay the ransom to set you free from the just judgment of God. Jesus said at the Last Supper, when he gave the cup to his disciples, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Congregation, I hope you will live all of this week and all of your life with the awareness that for you to be forgiven, for God to come to you with a free gift the unqualified free gift cost Jesus Christ his precious blood. Would you die for someone else? I'm pretty sure a lot of parents would say, yes, I'd die for my kid. And you don't even have to think about it. Like, would you have to think? I know I wouldn't have had to think. If it's me or my kid, then here I go. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Because... You give yourself for your child. But here, imagine this. Would you die for someone who had been nothing but a royal pain for you for years? Would you die for someone who was notorious for making your life miserable for decades, told lies about you, slandered you, abused you, abused your children, abused your property, and now all of a sudden you have to choose, will I die for that person? Who's going to do that? Maybe for a righteous person, you will die. But would you die for your sworn enemy? But that's what Jesus did, you see. And that's the incomprehensible aspect of the gospel. Jesus Christ didn't die for really nice people that he saw a lot of potential in. No, Jesus Christ died for enemies. So Paul says, he loved us while we were enemies. While we were giving him the finger, if I may be so bold as to use that reckless analogy again while we were spitting at God in the face, while we were saying, no, I don't want to live under your law, sorry, not going to do that, while we were like that as part of the human race, fallen, miserable, wretched, then Christ loved us in that condition, 
That's incredible. That's extraordinary. And if you actually believe that, it's going to put you on your knees. It's going to put you on your knees. It's going to change your life. Jesus suffered and died in our place as a suffering servant of the Lord. And so he made peace. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you didn't have to. So many contemporary theologians, they continue to publish books, and they're all bent out of shape about the doctrine of the atonement that we find in Lord's Day 5. They heap scorn on this notion of full payment. They heap scorn on the idea of satisfaction of justice. But if you read their books carefully, what they have really done is they have diminished God drastically so that you can hardly say anymore that God is holy. You can hardly say anymore that he's a God of infinite majesty. You can hardly say anymore that he's a God of justice. You know what he is? He's just a good old boy like you and me. That's all he is in liberal theology. One liberal theologian was uh, bold enough to put his thoughts into honest confession. He said that liberal Christians, I'm using that term loosely now, serve an imaginary God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ who could have spared himself the cross. Like if God is not a God of justice, why did Jesus go to the cross? Like what folly? If God is not a God of justice, if Jesus wasn't on the cross to make atonement for the sins of the world, what is he doing there? Why didn't he call on the legions of angels that were available to him? Why not? Well, he stayed on the cross because he was absorbing the just judgment of God against the sin of humanity. So forgiveness of sins does not mean that God simply lets us get away with something. I've noticed in years of teaching young people at catechism, that that's actually what the sort of the default idea of children is about forgiveness. The default idea of children is God, God's forgiveness means He just lets us get away with something. But that is not forgiveness in the Bible. Forgiveness in the Bible means that God restores us to fellowship with Him because the penalty for sin has been paid. That's why by Jesus Christ. Because He paid what we owe, we can receive forgiveness for free through faith. Let me end by um, having you go back with me to that website about Canada's national debt. Now, just imagine you're going to go after church and you're going to go check that website because you're curious and you haven't seen it before. And you watch it for a while and you're feeling overwhelmed because the millions are adding up even as you watch. And you know that you and your children are going to pay for that one way or the other. It is going to happen. Mark my words. You will pay unless Jesus returns. Um, and then as you're watching, all of a sudden, something really strange happens. All of a sudden, the whole thing gets set to zero. Now, how cool would that be to actually watch the whole thing get set to zero you know, I can tell you a story about a person who walked to the bank once because he was financially distressed and he was going to go to the banker to appeal for mercy to the banker, an extension on his badly overdue loan payment. 
And he walked into the bank, sat down with the, whoever officer he was talking to there, financial officer, and he told the officer what his problem was and began into a little appeal for mercy. And the banker said, you know, this is really, really strange. He says, because someone just walked in here 10 minutes ago and paid off your loan. Well, this happened in the town of Carmen, Manitoba. I heard this story from the person to whom it happened. Um, he walked into the bank and his loan was gone. There was no debt left. And that's what you have, dear brothers and sisters, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no debt left. Jesus Christ has paid your debt. He has satisfied God's justice. He's brought the number down to zero. And furthermore, there's no possibility of ever getting into debt again because Christ has infinite credit of righteousness and he will always be putting that into the account of those who believe in his name. And so go home with joy and celebrate in your homes and in all of your relationships the good news of God's free grace in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.